You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So over the last couple Sundays, uh, I've said more than once that Hebrews chapter 6 contains one of the strongest, most uncomfortable warning passages in the Bible. And, and that's true. We, we've seen that. We saw that. We looked at that last week. But also, I want you to know that Hebrews chapter 6, more importantly, more than that, more than the warning passage, this chapter shows us the resurrection glory of Jesus. And that's what I want us to see this morning. I can't wait to show you this. So let me pray and we'll dig in. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his atoning death and for his eternal life. And thank you for all of your blessings to us in him. Thank you for the blessing of children. Thank you for our kids. Thank you that we can be here together in this place to hear from you. And so we ask now by your Holy Spirit, speak to us. Help us, Father, to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the first thing we should do is just back up for a minute and remember the context of the passage. We, we've been looking at, over the last two weeks here, chapter 6, and what we've seen is a digression within the, the, the larger argument of the writer here. There's been a detour that we've been looking at that began in chapter 5, verse 11, and runs through here to chapter 6, verse 20. The, the writer, if you can remember, he had been going one direction. He had been encouraging these readers to endure in faith, to, to hold fast to their hope, to cling to Jesus. And he said, hey, we can do that. We can hold fast because of Jesus' high priestly ministry. He introduces that at the end of chapter 4. But in order for the writer to, to really explain how Jesus is our high priest, he needs to talk about Melchizedek. And as soon as he mentions Melchizedek, that's when he, he hits the brakes and he takes a turn in a different direction to talk about the spiritual condition of these first readers. That's in 5.11. He says that Melchizedek is, uh, is too hard to explain to these first readers because they become dull or sluggish in hearing. They've deliberately stayed spiritual infants. They, they just want to stick, if you remember, they just want to stick to the non-controversial milk only. And the writer of Hebrews points this out, he gives an honest assessment of the situation, and then he just won't have it. He doesn't let it stay. Like a good coach, he calls the readers up. He calls them up to become who they are, be carried on to maturity, chapter 6, verse 1. And one of the reasons that he does this, one of the reasons he calls the readers up is because this perpetual spiritual infancy, which they're doing, it makes them especially vulnerable to apostasy. The writer warns about apostasy, we saw last week, beginning in verse 4. But I want to make sure that we catch the connection between falling away in verses 4 to 6 and the immature Christians that he's mentioned just before it. The reason the writer commands these Christians to leave behind milk only and to be carried on to maturity, verse 1, 
is because their deliberate immaturity, their dullness, or their sluggishness of hearing is truly a slippery slope. Yes, those things really exist. And this is one of them. If these readers stay in this sluggishness, it means that they are on the brink of abandoning Jesus. And so the writer calls him up. That's verse 9. We saw this last week. He is convinced of better things for these readers. They're not going to fall away. Not these, not these readers, not these Christians. They won't fall away. Their faith is genuine. Their salvation is real. He assures them of this in verse 9. But now we have to ask, on what basis can he say this? How does he know? How can he assure his readers in this way. That is the question we're at this morning. We got there last week in verse 9, and that's where we're going to camp today. The writer is confident in the salvation of these Christians, in our salvation. He's confident. But where is that confidence coming from? I think today's passage, verses 9 to 20, I think it answers that question in three parts. The writer of Hebrews is certain in the salvation of these Christians for three reasons. Here they are. First, because God sees. Second, because God swore. And then third, because Jesus is risen. We're going to focus on these three things. First, looking at God sees. I want you to see that God sees. This is verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, we saw, is where the writer is certain of these Christians' salvation. Verse 10 is where the reader grounds this certainty. Look at verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do or as you still serve. In short, The writer is saying that God sees the evidence of their faith. He sees the evidence of their genuine faith. So then we ask, what is that evidence? Well, let's just read the verse carefully here, verse 10. Let's start at the end of the verse and work our way backwards. So I want you to look at verse 10, the very end of the verse where it says, serving the saints as you still do. That's that's their work. That's what these Christians are doing. They have been serving the saints, and they are still serving the saints. And it's visible. You can see it. It's what's happening out here in the real world. It's their ongoing way of life. And that happening out here in this visible way, it's showing something. I want you to see that word there in verse 10, the word shown. This is key. What does their serving show? Verse 10 says, the love that you have shown, look at it, for his name in serving the saints. You see that? The love that you have shown for his name, for God. So these Christians serving one another shows that they love God. Right? That's verse 10. You see it in verse 10. 
their love for God is then what manifests the genuineness of their faith. And, and this is a theological point that's worth highlighting here in the book of Hebrews, especially here in chapter 6, because last week we saw that those who fall away are ultimately those who don't trust in Jesus. They don't have faith. That's what's lacking, remember? They don't have faith. They don't trust in Jesus. But we should just be clear again that those who, who fell away, they did have knowledge of Jesus. They knew about Jesus just like Judas knew about Jesus. Their issue was not a lack of knowledge, it was a lack of faith. It was that their hearts didn't embrace him. Those who fall away from Jesus do not believe Jesus, do not love Jesus. Genuine faith in Jesus is a faith that loves him. That's what makes a genuine Christian. It's a faith that loves. A faith that loves, a knowledge that leads us to embrace, to believe, to love Jesus is what makes us different than demons. Because demons probably knew more about Jesus than we do. Um, Jonathan Edwards makes a really good point on this, commenting on, a, on the story in Luke chapter 8. You remember the story when Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man, Luke chapter 8, verse 28. It says that when he, when the demon-possessed man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. That's Luke 8, 28. And then Edwards comes and says, commenting on this verse, he says, here is external worship. The demon is religious. He prays. He prays in a humble posture. He falls down before Christ. He lies prostrate. He prays earnestly. He cries with a loud voice. He uses humble expressions. I beseech thee, torment me not. He uses respectable, honorable, adoring expressions like Jesus, son of the most high God. Nothing was wanting but love, Edward says. See, the demon's knowledge of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 28, the demon's knowledge of Jesus made him dread Jesus. Which means we have to ask, what does our knowledge of Jesus make us do? If you are a genuine Christian, it makes you love him. You love him. We love him. We see him. We know him. And we embrace him with our hearts. That's what's happening for these Christians here in Hebrews 6. They loved God and they manifested their love for God in how they served the saints. And God saw that. God's not unjust. 
He doesn't overlook reality. He is just and he sees. He sees the genuineness of our faith. He sees our love for him on display. And so the writer here to the Hebrews wants to encourage these Christians to keep showing that genuineness of faith. Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. They should continue to manifest their faith for a purpose as stated here as the negative positive. Look at this, verse 12. Keep showing, keep showing the genuineness of your faith, verse 12, so that you not be sluggish. And this word for sluggish here, translated sluggish, it's the same word translated dull in chapter 5, verse 11. And remember, that's what, that's what got us here. That word in chapter 5, verse 11, has been what caused this detour. The readers were sluggish in hearing. And now the writer is saying to them, hey, there's a different way. You don't have to be dull. You don't have to be sluggish. The reader calls them out of their sluggishness as he calls them to persevere in faith. Manifest the genuineness of your faith so that you are not sluggish, but instead be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And before we get to verse 13, I want you just to notice those pair of words there, faith and patience. These are an important pair of words. The relationship between those two words, faith and patience, that is basically what this entire book of Hebrews is about. Faith and patience means enduring faith. It means to have faith with patience. It means to have faith that holds on, even even when you don't get everything you believe all at once. Like, for example, say that God makes you a promise and you believe that promise, but the promise is not fulfilled right away. What if the fulfillment of that promise is still a very long ways out in the future? Can you think of any Old Testament examples that fit that category? Abraham. Look at this, Abraham. And when these first readers see those words there in verse 13, but before, verse 12, faith and patience. When they see faith and patience, boom, the first thing they're thinking about is Abraham. Abraham is what comes into their minds. The Old Testament, this is important, the Old Testament doesn't just have negative examples of unbelief. That's what we've seen in chapters 3 and 4 with the, the Exodus generation. The Old Testament also has very positive examples of faith, which we're going to see in chapter 11, but we see a preview here. And in those positive examples of faith, Abraham is on the top of that list. God sees. Secondly here, the reason the writer is certain about the salvation of these Christians is because he swore. And this is where Abraham really comes into view. Now, I don't know about you guys, but growing up, I was taught not to swear. Couldn't do it. I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home with Christian parents in a church that believed the Bible. It was a blessing. And so I grew up, it was let your yes be yes, let your no be no. I couldn't do any, you know, swearing on my mama's grave, right? No matter how cool it sounded, couldn't say it, couldn't do it, never said it. 
Even saying that right then is kind of feels a little weird. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. Um, we couldn't do it. We could, I couldn't say it. I mean, it was just didn't do it. Also, more importantly, it was out of the question that I would ever swear by God. That was anathema. But did you know that God swears by God? Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely, that's, that's the swear, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15. And thus Abraham, or in this way, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The writer is saying that the reason Abraham, who had faith and patience, as our example, the reason Abraham obtained the promise is because God swore. That's what he's saying. That's the point. Now, the writer has mentioned Abraham, but this is not really about Abraham. This is about God's promise to Abraham. And the writer wants us to know that it's really important that God swore this promise. That's a relevant detail. That's why he includes the quote here in verse 14. If you look at verse 14, find those quote marks. See the quote marks in 14? That line, surely I will bless you and multiply you. That comes from Genesis 22, verse 17. God swears this to Abraham after Abraham shows that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And you remember the story in Genesis 22. The first readers of this book, these, these readers with a Jewish background, they absolutely knew what the writer was doing here. They, they had this story in Genesis down by heart. They knew what he was saying. God had already promised Abraham, if you remember, back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham already had believed God and was justified in Genesis 15. But then in chapter 22, Abraham's faith was made manifest. It was made visible by his willingness to obey God even when it didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense because everything about God's promise to Abraham was riding on Isaac. How could Abraham have descendants that outnumber the stars if he and Sarah's only son is dead? It didn't matter. It didn't matter for Abraham. That's how deeply he believed God. We'll see this in chapter 11. He knew what God said. He believed God, and God saw his faith. And so God doubled down on his promise. God repeated his promise to Abraham to bless him and multiply him, and this time God swore it by himself. Now, why would God do that? Well, why does anybody swear? Well, why do we have oaths? Look at verse 16. The writer of Hebrews is like, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. I, I like the way the NIV translates that last part. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. That's what he's saying. 
In other words, swearing or, or taking an oath is a confirmation that's meant to settle something. Because, because of an oath, there's no dispute, there's no more argument that the person will do what they said. The oath is a final confirmation, that's the point. And this oath, as a final confirmation, is always connected to a higher authority. When people swear by authorities higher than themselves, they're making themselves liable to that higher thing, that higher authority. They're saying this, what they're saying? They're saying, hey, if I don't do what I'm saying to you, I have to answer to this thing I just swore by. That's how it's a confirmation. Here's a, here's a, here's a bad example, okay? If I were to say to you, if I were to say, I swear to God that tomorrow I will buy you a cup of coffee. Just imagine I say that. Me saying that means that I am not answering to you about the coffee. Not anymore. Because I swore by God, it means I'm answering to God. And because I'm answering to God, it gives utmost confirmation that I'm going to come through on the coffee, right? I'm not going to, you're going to get the coffee because I swore to God. That's how it works. The, the, and the higher, the higher the authority we swear by, the more confirmation there is that we're going to do what we say. And I've belabored this point, but you get it. This is how the world works. We understand this way. This is how we as humans in lesser degrees, this is how we, we signal through our signed contracts, through our agreements. This is the way that we signal and express that we really mean what we're saying. We do this all the time. We live in a world that operates this way, that allows us to have confirmations about what we say. And so now, verse 16, that's, that's been established. Behold the kindness of God in verse 17. God doesn't need any kind of oath to back up his words. He, he doesn't need a confirmation to back up his words because he never lies. It's impossible for him to lie. What he says is, but verse 17, God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He wants to show us something more certain. The, the heirs of the promise that he mentions here is us. The heirs of the promise of those who share the faith of Abraham, the writer is talking about Christians here. He's talking about these first Christian readers and he's talking about us today. God desires to show us with maximum certainty that he's going to do what he says. And therefore, God accommodates us. God comes down to our level, and in the terms of how we deal with one another, God guarantees his promise with an oath. And because there's nothing greater, by him, uh, nothing greater than him by which he can swear, he swears by himself. God swears by God, which means that if God breaks this promise, he would be in conflict with himself, with his very nature, which is all impossible. What God has done here is he has put his very being on the line by these two unchangeable things. It's already impossible for God to lie. And now, 
for our sake, coming down to our level. He swears by his unchangeable nature. By these two unchangeable things, verse 18, we who have, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's a lot, a lot of words. Get this, though. This is what he's saying. God swore his promise to Abraham so that we would be strongly encouraged to keep believing, to hold fast to our future hope. We need, we need faith and patience right now like Abraham had. And God has given us the greatest possible reason to have faith and patience. And that actually is what comes now in verses 19 and 20. Everything the writer has been saying so far has been building up to these last two verses. Remember the question, the question is, why is the, reader of, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, why is the writer of Hebrews so certain in the salvation of these Christians? How can he be so confident? Well, one, it's because God sees. Two, it's because God swore. Now three, it's because Jesus is risen. I, I can't wait for you to, I can't wait to show you this. Look at this, look at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now the this in verse 19 is referring back to the two unchangeable things in verse 18, God's promise and God's oath. God's promise and God's oath are the two unchangeable things. That has been the focus of this writer going back to verse 13. That promise and that oath is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And when he says this, he's now introducing a nautical metaphor, right? Ships have anchors. We understand how this works. Ships use anchors so that they don't drift. An anchor is what makes a ship stay put. An anchor, track with this, an anchor is what makes a ship hold fast to where it is. Well, the certainty of God's promise and oath is like an anchor for our souls. It's an anchor for our faith. That is why we can hold fast. I think it's important for us to see here that the way the writer of Hebrews encourages our faith is by talking about the object of our faith. What he does is he turns our attention away from ourselves to focus on God and his faithfulness. Even in verse 15, when he mentions Abraham as an example for us to follow, as an example for us to imitate, the focus in those verses is not about Abraham. It's about the certainty of God's promise to Abraham. So yes, we should imitate Abraham. There are those whose faith we should imitate, but the writer 
doesn't get there by saying, be like Abraham. He gets there by saying, look at how faithful God was to Abraham. Look at God. Get your eyes off yourself and look at God. And now in the second part of verses 19 and and 20, he's doing that exact same thing. He says here that God's promise and oath is a strong encouragement for us to hold fast, to keep believing. That is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And now in his next step here, he's still not talking about the mechanics of how we hold fast, but he fixes our eyes all the more on this assurance we have. And this assurance he's about to show us, this greatest certainty of our salvation, it's seen in the ultimate display of God's faithfulness. The ultimate display of God's faithfulness. That's what he's going to do here. And I want to just stop and just pause and just let you know that the last, the last seven minutes, when I, I have labored so hard over these words. And I, I just want to be honest, I don't know that it's going to make sense. All right? I, I, <laughs> I, I'm sorry I can't explain this better to you. I, I feel in this glory in the text, and I just feel weak, okay, in how to explain it. So you got to look with me and think with me and try to see this with me, okay, in these verses 19 and 20. Here's the question. What is the ultimate display of God's faithfulness? If, if the, the greatest certainty that we have for our salvation is seen in the ultimate display of God's faithfulness, what is that ultimate display? Well, in the passage, the ultimate display of God's faithfulness is that He has already fulfilled His promise and His oath. And this is where this passage becomes distinctively Christian. If you glance back to verse 13, These verses about Abraham, down through verse 18, these verses about Abraham and these two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, pretty much every Jewish person in this day, when they see that, they would say, yep, that's Genesis 22. That's great. I agree with that. So now what the writer's going to do is he's going to take a step beyond Abraham. He's saying not only is God's promise and oath true and certain, but he wants to show us that God's promise and oath is fulfilled and active in this exact moment. How? How? I'm just going to ask questions. Keep asking questions and try to answer them. How has God fulfilled His promise and oath? Look at this, verse 19. It has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, in our English translations, that word hope has been added in verse 19 to help us out, okay? In the original, it's just the word it. And it refers back to anchor, 
And anchor explains the two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, okay? So God's promise and oath, two unchangeable things, that's our anchor, and our anchor is what's entered into behind the curtain. When he mentions this, that God's promise and oath as our anchor has entered into the inner place behind the curtain, we know we're getting Levitical here. This is Levitical. Entering behind the curtain is what the high priest does in the book of Leviticus. The reason that we preach through Leviticus is for this verse. It's for all this right here. We, we know in the book of Leviticus about the high priest, about the most holy place. This is amazing. Look at this. The phrase, look at that phrase, the inner place behind the curtain. That phrase occurs only one time in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the very center of the book of Leviticus. And do you remember, what's, what's Leviticus 16 about? The Day of Atonement, right? Leviticus 16 is about the Day of Atonement. It's that one day of the year, the most holy day on Israel's calendar. It's the day when the high priest would enter the most holy place, the inner place behind the curtain, and he would go there to make atonement. He would, he would take with him the blood of the bull, and he would sprinkle the bull on the altar. And him doing that, on the Ark of the Covenant, in that most holy place, him sprinkling that blood, by that is how God forgave Israel's sin. And remember that Leviticus now, the earthly tabernacle, that most holy place, it was just a copy of the heavenly one. The truer most holy place is in the heavenly dimension where God dwells, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. So God's promise and oath, our anchor, has entered into that heavenly most holy place like a high priest would do. And so now we have to ask, what's the connection between God's promise and God's oath and the high priest, right? We're just asking questions. What, what connection do these two unchangeable things, God's promise and God's oath, what connection does that have to the high priest? How do they fit together? Okay, so where, where, where's the other place in the Bible where we see God promise and God swear? Psalm 110 verse 4. Listen to this. Yahweh has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is an amazing psalm because it is God the Father speaking to God the Son, the Messiah. God promised and swore to the Messiah that he would be a priest forever like Melchizedek. Just like God did to Abraham with a promise and oath, God gave maximum certainty to the Messiah that this would happen. He would be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God swore this would happen and it has. This is where he just goes next level. It's happened. 
Well, how? How has this promise in oath happened? It's because Jesus has gone there. Look at this. Jesus has entered into the most holy place as the fulfillment of God's promise and oath. Jesus has become what God promised and swore to him in Psalm 110. And now we ask, when? When did God fulfill his promise and oath to Jesus? Easter. Easter. See, here's what happened. On Friday, Jesus died. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And that's the problem. It's a problem if you were promised to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek because you can't be a priest forever if you're dead, right? Right? This is a problem. And so we're on the edge of our seats. God promised and he swore to the Messiah that he would be this priest forever, but now he's dead. So what's going to happen? Sunday morning, on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus ascended into heaven, and he entered into the most holy place to make atonement for us as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which means he is our high priest forever. Forever means he will not die. He cannot die because he has conquered death. Death does not have dominion over him, but he continues forever. Jesus lives forever, which includes this moment right now. This is, this is, this is what he's saying. The greatest certainty that we have for our salvation is that Jesus Christ is real. And that in this exact moment, while we're sitting in here, he is sitting in the heavenly most holy place where he has gone to make atonement for our sins and where he now lives for us forever. And where he is, is where we belong. And it's where we will be forever in the future. World without end. And now because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he's done, we come to this table in celebration. We come in worship. We come not just knowing him, we come loving him this morning. Amen? We come to this table in worship. And so if you're here, if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, if Jesus right now lives for you as your high priest, we invite you to celebrate with us. Eat and drink and give him thanks. We're going to serve the bread first. His body is the true bread. 
let us serve you.